I want to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, picking things up at verse 27 to 30. I entitled my message this morning, Sex and the Gospel. Perhaps a few heads perked up. Years ago, uh, a couple came to me, uh, not from this church, no, none of you would know them. They, they came and they were, they were planning on getting married and they asked if I would do pre-marriage counseling for them. They didn't need me to officiate the wedding, they were going for a, a destination wedding, but uh, they asked and I agreed. I'm happy to help couples uh, prepare for marriage and walk through some material. And so I began meeting with them and met with them over the course of a, a number of months and a number of about six or so, seven sessions and uh, walked through things with them. And uh, in every relationship, there are some, there are some challenges, things that, hey, you're going to have to be aware of this. But as we walked through things, there, there was a, a red flag or two that I saw, but I just could never place my finger on something. And so we walked through that and I I blessed them, and they went on their way to get married. Probably six or eight months later, I got a call from her letting me know that, that they were getting a divorce. She had discovered that during that whole period when they were meeting with me for pre-marriage counseling, uh, and through their marriage, uh, their wedding, and into the early months of their marriage, he was actually sleeping with another woman. She was devastated, needless to say. And no doubt we can all agree here together this morning that that, that is horrific. That is awful. In the text we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to say these hard words. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson writes in response, which one of us is not guilty of adultery? Before we dig deeply into that, let me remind you of where we've come from and what we are walking through. Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to is prefaced with the arrival of Jesus proclaiming the good news, the good news of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the, good news, the good news is the announcement that in Jesus Christ's coming, a whole new order of existence is breaking into the world. The future is spilling into the present. Heaven is invading earth. I've been contending throughout this series so far that when the good news takes hold of a person's heart, something happens. That something that happens is is described in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. That something that happens is the creation of new people, a new humanity, gospelized humanity. Men and women, young and old, who have new characteristics, who have new purpose, new ambition, new behaviors. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not giving us a new law. He's not giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. No, uh, this is not just a set of rules. Rather, Jesus is painting a picture He's painting a portrait for us of what our lives look like uh, of this new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity, what, what we begin to look like by the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit of God at work in us, changing us when the Spirit is having His way in us. We, we are currently making our way through uh, a larger section of chapter 5, the last 
half or two-thirds of chapter 5. And a, a number of weeks ago, we took a sort of a bird's-eye view of, of these six sections. We wanted us to, to uh, make sure we saw the forest before we dug into the details looking at the trees. Because there are some things we need to understand about this uh, whole section and what's going on here, what Jesus is doing, if we're going to understand the particulars as we walk through it. And, and there were a number of key principles, key truths that I wanted us to be clear on. Uh, one of them was that, that this is not just about the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. God, uh, just a mere wooden compliance with what we encounter here will miss the point. Secondly, this is not just about the externals. God cares about the internals, what's going on in our hearts. Thirdly, that this is not oppressive. This is not rules to keep, but it's freeing us to be who we were created to be. Fourthly, that, that, that this is not just negative what we are not to do, but positively who we are to be as God's people, as the gospelized. And then fifth, that these things are not an end in themselves. Rather, uh, the end in itself is, is knowing God. God wants our hearts. He wants us. And so we need to bear those things in mind as we walk through these individual sections, each of these six sections really serves as an illustration for us, illustrating how the gospel impacts our lives, how the gospel shapes our lives in various ways. And so this is not exhaustive. This is six illustrations of how the gospel transforms our lives. Last week, we looked at Jesus' words about murder, uh, that and what we discovered is that God's desire is for far more than that we simply refrain from the physical act of homicide. God cares about our relationships with others. He cares about anger in our hearts and insults and names that we may hurl at others. God wants us to be people who pursue peace and reconciliation in relationships. Merely refraining from murdering someone is not obedience to what God calls us to. The gospel has implications for every area of our lives, and, and we see that fleshed out in these six sections. sections. So this morning as we come to this te te uh, text that, in which Jesus addresses the topic of sex, it should not surprise us because sex is a significant part of our lives as human beings. It makes sense that God would have something to say, not only something, but quite a lot to say about sex. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read our text this morning, Matthew 5, verse 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone look, who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I want to do four things with you in the time that we have together this morning. Uh, four uh, things I want to speak to. First, the goodness of sex. Secondly, the problem of lust. Third, the way of obedience. And fourth, the hope of the gospel. The goodness of sex, the problem of lust, the way of obedience, and the hope of the gospel. Uh, first, a preliminary comment. If you look at our text, uh, you will see that it is addressing men, specifically married men. 
And what I want to make clear, again, it's not about the letter of the law, it's the Spirit. What Jesus says here applies to all people. Married men, unmarried men, and married women and unmarried women. There is no one excluded from what Jesus is saying here. We need to understand that going in. Jesus' concern is for our sexual obedience. It is, his concern is for, uh, with all forms of sexual immorality. And so let's understand that as we go into this. So first, I want to speak to the goodness of sex. Look with me at how our text opens. Jesus begins by saying to his disciples and the crowds of people gathered around him on the hillside, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus here is, is speaking to, he's referencing the seventh commandment. We can see the, uh, the commandments in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5 where we read that commandment. And what is obvious here is that Jesus stands in agreement with this command. Remember, Jesus said earlier, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus wants to, he fulfills it in various ways, including helping us understand the fullness of what God in his law is saying to us. So he's affirming that. Jesus is in agreement. You shall not commit adultery. Now, that commandment really gets at the heart of the biblical sex ethic, which, no surprise, stands at odds with what is dominant in our, the cultural view of our day when it comes to sex what is the biblical sex ethic? In a phrase, it is this, that there is to be no sex outside of the covenant uh, relationship, covenant marriage relationship of one man and one woman. Stated positively, sex is only to happen within the context of that covenant relationship of marriage between one man and one woman. Now, that is offensive to many in our cultures. In fact, probably illegal in Canada at this point, but it's what God says. It's what the Bible teaches. Now, there are a number of questions that likely come to my mind. Why is that? Why is that the biblical sex ethic? Why, is, why does God set this boundary around sexual expression? Is it because sex is dirty or unspiritual? Uh, because sex is an unholy thing? Is it because God is against sex? Is the world around us correct when it concludes that when it comes to sex, God is a bit prudish? Let me take a few moments to respond to these questions. It is of great significance. There's a very significant reason why God has limited sexual expression to within the boundaries of a marriage covenant between a man and a woman, and I'll speak to that in a moment. But first, I just want to simply uh, speak to the goodness of sex. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that God, uh, God is not against sex. God created sex. Sex is part of God's good creation, and, and He's not squeamish about it. He's, he's not prudish about it. Think about how the biblical story opens. Genesis chapter 2. There's a man, he's naked. God creates a naked woman, brings her to him, and he breaks out in rapturous song. That's how the biblical story begins. In the book of Proverbs, these words are spoken to a married man. We read this. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. The Bible is not squeamish about sex. Sex is God's good gift. In fact, we could, we could read through much of Song of Songs 
uh, an entire Old Testament book that, that is filled with uh, poetry celebrating the glory of marital sex. All this to say that, that God is not against sex. He, he's not prudish about sex. God created it. It is a good gift to creation, a good gift to us. It's not dirty, unspiritual, or unholy. In fact, if you were with us a couple years ago, when I, we did a series of messages on gender and sexuality, we talked about how in the context of marriage, uh, sexual union is in fact a form of worship. It brings glory to God. So then, the question, why has God set this boundary around sexual expression? Why has God determined that sex is only to happen inside the covenant of a marriage between a man and a woman? To answer that, first, I need to explain the significance of a covenant. A covenant is, it is a promise. It is a binding promise. When a man and a woman, biblically, when a man and a woman stand before one another and commit themselves to one another to enter into marriage, to be husband and wife... They are entering what the Bible describes as a covenant. They are promising themselves in the face of an uncertain future. They are promising themselves to one another, to give themselves fully to one another, exclusively and permanently. In that context, the context of the marriage covenant then, sex becomes like a sacrament. A sacrament is an external sign of an invisible reality, and that's what sex by God's design is in the context of biblical marriage. When you engage as a husband and wife, when a husband and wife engage sexually, they are acting out with their bodies what they are to be doing with their whole lives, giving themselves wholly, unreservedly, exclusively, and permanently to one another. It's a way of saying over and over again, I belong completely and exclusively to you. Now, when you have sex outside of a marriage covenant, sex becomes something very different. Whether you recognize it or not, whether you want to admit it or not, when you have sex outside of that covenant context, sex is really, it's a consumer good is is one way that Tim Keller puts it. What do I mean by that? When you have sex outside of a covenant, you you are treating sex like a need, like a commodity. I have a need, and so I'm going to look for someone to meet that need. It's something you use to keep that relationship going. It's something... There's, there's a book I'm going to cite in a little bit, but a lot of research uh, says that a lot of young adults, when they're in a relationship, you, you, you think there's this, this assumption that you have to have sex at some point to keep that relationship going. It's this consumer good. It's this commodity. And in that kind of a relationship, it's not the relationship that is of greatest importance. Rather, it is my needs. My needs are the most important thing. Let me illustrate. We generally, when we order pizza, there's a pizza joint close to our house, and I have a relationship with the fellow who runs it. I'd say we're, we're friends. We talk. I've invited him here. He hasn't come yet. But, but we're friends and, and continue to have a relationship, but that relationship is, is about pizza. It's the only time I see him. And as long as the pizza is good... And as long as I'm content with the price he charges for that pizza, that relationship carries on. But what if I, what if I encounter a better deal? 
or, or better pizza, right? The primary thing is my need for pizza and the fact that he can sell it to me. The, the primary thing is not the relationship. In a consumer relationship, a relationship is secondary. My needs come first. In a covenant relationship, you are promising yourself to the other. You are committing yourself to the other no matter what. The relationship comes first. My needs come second. I commit to serve you. I commit to give myself to you. I commit to love you no matter what. I'm here for you no matter what. In a covenant relationship, you have made a promise. You have tethered yourself to that person, for better or for worse, in sickness or in health, for richer or poorer, till death do you part. And thus, in a covenant relationship, there is tremendous safety and security, where is In a consumer relationship, sex is always marketing. Research shows this, secular research, that that couples who cohabitate before, who live together before getting married, are far more likely to get divorced than couples who don't. In their book, Premarital Sex in America, two sociologists, Mark Regnerus and Jeremy Euchre speak to that fact that, that a lot of young couples that, that they did research with, they say, well, we're trying to discover if we're combat, compatible or not. But, but their research shows conclusively that that's actually impossible be, for a couple of reasons. One, because your standards for a live-in partner are significantly lower than they are for a mate. But secondly, and more importantly, you have entered into that relationship as consumers. There's not that safety and security. And so you use sex. It's a commodity. You're you're always marketing. And, And one of the unspoken questions that goes on in people's minds then when you're cohabitating is, can I do better? Can I do better? One of the women they interviewed in their research said this, it's It's like a never-ending audition. Like a never-ending audition. And sex is a tool. It's it's a consumer good that I used to try and keep him in the relationship. It's a never-ending audition. Without that covenantal commitment, without that covenantal context, sex is marketing. So, that's point one, the goodness of sex. God has created sex. It is a good gift to be celebrated, enjoyed within the context for which He created it. God is not squeamish. He's not prudish. We need to understand that. Secondly, let's turn to the problem of lust. Jesus accepts the Old Testament commandment that you shall not commit adultery, but He challenges the wrong understanding of this law. He helps us grasp the fullness of God's desire, of God's intention. We read, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law thought that they were faithfully obeying this commandment if they simply didn't sleep with any other women. They thought they were being faithful. They thought they were obeying God, that they were honoring God. If we just don't jump in bed with someone who's not our wife. 
John Stott writes this, In their view, they and their pupils kept the seventh commandment, provided that they avoided the act of adultery itself. They thus gave a conveniently narrow definition of sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. But you see, Jesus cares about more. Jesus desires more. Just as was the case with murder, where God cares not simply that we don't spill human blood, but that we don't harbor anger in our hearts. He cares about what's going on in our heart. So too when it comes to sex. God cares not only that we don't act out sexually in ways that are ungodly, but He also cares profoundly about what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. Please understand, Jesus does not say here, if you notice or if you see. God has created beauty, and, and it's one thing to notice, but lust is a different thing. Looking lustfully. The word used here is the word, the word it's a strong word. It, it speaks of, of this overpowering sexual desire, a craving, a longing for, a desire to possess. There is within this word the, the idea of greed, which always wants more, and it's, it's a, a thoroughly self-centered concept. It's this drive to consume for one's own appetites, one, one's own desires, one's own satisfaction. Years ago, when I was a senior in high school back in Ontario, I had a job as a delivery driver for a florist shop. And uh, there were two of us drivers, Jason and myself, and uh, after school we would come in, we each had a delivery van, we'd load it up, typically Jason delivered south side, I delivered north side in the city where we were, and then whoever got back first would load up the last, uh, the last few deliveries that had come out since we'd left, and uh, would go deliver those while whoever came in last would, would clean the shop, that was the drill. And so one particular day I came in and... and uh, I loaded my van, and I went and delivered mine, and Jason was off delivering hers, and over the, the radio, this is in the days before cell phones, one of, the, one of the ladies that worked there said, oh, there's some more deliveries, including one that needs to go to a gentleman's club, strip club. And I remember hearing that and thinking, I want to get back first. I want to deliver that. I, I want a reason to go there. I, I want to see what I can see. And I likely broke a lot of traffic laws racing around delivering my deliveries. And I made it back first. And I took those last deliveries, including that one. That desire, that drive, was lust. It, it cared not a whit for the other person. It was a violation of what God says here. See, lust turns sex into uh, something utterly contrary to what God has designed sex for. God's design is that sex would be a covenant renewal mechanism within the safety and security of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, giving themselves fully and unreservedly to one another, acting out with their bodies what they are doing with the whole of their lives. But lust turns sex into something thoroughly selfish, self-centered, objectifying the other, using the other, consuming the other. There's no relationship. Lust turns sex into simply this consumer good, something I want, something I will pursue. 
utterly devoid of self-giving and serving. We see this nowhere more clearly than when we consider pornography and masturbation. There's not even another person involved. I mean, there is at the other end of the video or whatever, but you know what I'm saying. By God's design, sex is to be about giving and serving in that secure, safe relationship of a covenant marriage. Pornography and masturbation, sex is utterly a consumer good, selfish, self-centered, and personal to the core, the complete opposite of what sex is supposed to be. Nancy Piercy in her book, Love Thy Body, writes this, the most extreme example of depersonalized sex is pornography. There's one more thing that needs to be understood about lust, and that is this, that lust is fundamentally idolatrous. Anytime we look to a created thing as an ultimate thing, a, a, a created thing created good in its God-given context, but something that's been twisted. J.I. Packer describes sin as good gone wrong. That is, Satan is not original. He takes what God has made good and he twists it. Anytime we take something uh, created and we make it ultimate, we are guilty of idolatry. That's what happens in lust. Lust tells us that sex will satisfy our deepest needs, that this sexual uh, experience will, will meet our deepest needs, but the reality is lust leaves us thirsty because sex, though a good gift in accordance with God, when used in accordance with God's good design, is not ultimate, and it cannot satisfy the deepest longings of your heart or mine, which is why lust is always demanding more and more and more and is never satisfied. In Jeremiah 2, we read this, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Sex outside of God's design, sex outside of the covenant of marriage is a broken cistern that can never hold water. It is a broken cistern that will leave you thirsty. It will never satisfy. What we need to grasp is that at the root of our misdirected sexual desires is in fact a thirst for God. A thirst that can only be quenched through a relationship with God, the one who is the living water, Jesus. Christopher Wan writes this, we are all created to desire God as our highest good, but because of the corruption of original sin, the object of our desire has shifted away from God. Thus, we now desire what is created rather than the creator. Jesus' words are sobering. It is not merely avoiding the physical act of adultery that is a problem. It is what goes on in our hearts and our minds. Jesus says anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Pastor and author David Platt writes this, I and every other person are guilty at multiple levels of sexual thought, desire, speech, Indeed, outside of marriage between a husband and a wife, none of us is innocent of sexual immorality, and none of us are immune to it. 
Roy Clement writes this, we all have our skeletons in the cupboard. We all have things in our lives that we cannot remember without embarrassment. We all have thoughts lurking in our imaginations that would make us blush if they were displayed for public view. So the question we're left with is, what are we to do? What does Jesus call us to do? Well, let's look thirdly at the way of obedience. Look with me at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What are we to make of these words of Jesus? Are we to take these words literally? Does Jesus call us to maim ourselves? Are we actually supposed to pluck out eyes and cut off hands? I hope that if we pause and reflect carefully, it will dawn on us that this is rhetoric, this is hyperbole, because the reality is, the truth is, we can pluck out both eyes, we can close our eyes, lust is still possible. Don't need eyes to lust. Jesus here is making a point. He is making the point that when it comes to sexual sin, we are to take drastic action to root it out of our lives. That we are not to toy with it. That it is not something to be played with. D.A. Carson puts it this way. We are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, flirt with it. Enjoy nibbling a little of it around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, dig it out. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the er your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. The, the point that Jesus is making is that we must not take sin lightly. We must not take this sexual sin lightly. That we are to take whatever steps are necessary, make whatever sacrifices are required, go to any length that is needed to root it out of our lives. Why is Jesus so strong in what he says about adultery and lust and sexual immorality? Because of the danger it presents. Jesus says it is better for your body to, to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. The word translated hell here is literally the word Gehenna. I shared about this last week. Gehenna was an actual place, the south, a ravine just south of Jerusalem. It was a place where centuries earlier when Israel's kings were involved in pagan worship, they offered human sacrifices in this valley. By Jesus' day, it had become the city dump. It was a place where refuse was, was dumped to, to rot, to decay, and it was burned. And so this place was smoldering and, and burning and decay. And so by Jesus' day, the, the word Gehenna, this place, came to be a, a, a place that represented the place of judgment, place of disintegration and decay. With that in mind, listen to what Tim Keller writes. Unless you learn to deal with sex, it is so mysterious, it is so awesome, it is unique, it is so untamable, it's going to spread all sorts of decay and destruction in your life. Your whole life is going to break apart. 
set you on fire. Things are going to fall apart. This is serious. And the reason we have the problem is that we don't respect sex because we don't really see what sex is. We are called to take drastic steps to go whatever, to whatever lengths we need to, to root sexual sin out of our lives. I want to turn fourthly to the fourth thing I wanted to speak to, and that is the hope of the gospel. Perhaps at this point you're not feeling much hope. Perhaps there is guilt that you are experiencing. Perhaps there is a sense of being convicted. Perhaps there, there is hopelessness. I, I, I want to remind you of something that is absolutely vital for us to grasp. Do you remember how Jesus begins this sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who come with empty hands, who, who come recognizing that they are spiritually bankrupt, that they do not merit anything but God's judgment. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came proclaiming good news, that in His coming a whole new order of existence was breaking into the world, that in His coming something was happening. God was creating new, a new kind of humanity, gospelized humanity, men and women with different new characteristics and, and new ambitions and new behaviors. That the Sermon on the Mount is not the law cranked up on steroids. It's not a new set of rules. No, it is rather a portrait of, of who God is shaping us to be through what Jesus has done at the cross. That we, by the power of the Spirit in us, in light of the cross of what Christ has done, that He begins to change us. The good news is that in Jesus Christ, God saves. In Jesus, God rescues us. Jesus says to us, I do not love you because you have your act all together. Jesus has come not to condemn but to rescue. Not to condemn but to restore. Not to condemn but to heal. Not to condemn but to set free. And through faith in Jesus, we believe that all our sins are transferred onto the shoulders of Christ, that He bears all our sin, including all our sexual sin, that He suffered and died in our place, bearing our sins on the cross. And through faith in Him, we are clothed with His perfection, with His sexual purity. It's credited to us. That's the glory of the good news let me tell you something that you need to hear, that you need to understand. Your sexual sin does not disqualify you from being His child. Your sexual failure does not disqualify you from being a follower. Because you were never qualified on the basis of your performance in the first place. He alone, He alone is our source of righteousness. He alone is the one who qualifies us. And, and when we see that, when, when we get that, when we see the glory of the good news that in Christ there is healing and freedom and forgiveness, 
when, when, when we really see it, we will not go right on. I'm going to go run off and, and play around in this mud puddle, in this broken cistern. No, when we see the glory of the good news, we will find our hearts changing, our affections being transformed, and we will grow in obedience Because of our sinfulness, Jesus took drastic action. Jesus came. He, God put on flesh and He lived among us a life of complete submission and obedience. And He willingly went to the cross. He took drastic action, bearing our penalty, giving us His righteousness so that through faith in Him we might be healed saved, purified. And now Jesus says, now you take drastic action. I've saved you. I've redeemed you. I've washed you. I've made you clean. You are mine. Now go to whatever lengths it will take to get this out of your lives. So my question to you this morning is, what is Jesus calling you to do? What will it look like for you and for me to obey Jesus here? What steps do you need to take? What, what things do you need to purge out of your life, out of your home? Out of, what, what do you need to cut off? Who, who do you need to tell? One of the greatest weapons Satan uses against us is shame. Shame isolates us. We, in our sharing earlier, we talked about the, the goodness of community and, and just the support and the, the love and the care. But when it comes to sexual sin particularly, there's such great shame that people isolate and hide. Who do you need to share with? You need to confess something with a brother or sister. Or maybe you're fearful. You're not experiencing rejection yet, but you fear it will come you fear being alone. But I want to challenge you. I want to invite you to step into the security and safety of the family of God's people. Find a brother. Find a sister. Come visit with me. Daryl Johnson says, the kingdom life is not a solitary life, but rather life in community. We need one another. We're called to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. And I think that that may be the, the first and most important step that some need to take, that you've carried this secret, that you've struggled alone, and I want to call you into Christian community, call you to step out of hiding into the light, to not walk alone. Abigail Van Buren said this, the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. Let's embrace that truth. Let's, as a community, be a safe place for broken people, for confession, where sins can be confessed, where chains can be loosed, where hearts are continued, continually transformed by Christ through the cross, through the power of His Spirit at work in us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your presence here.
And Jesus, we, we just invite you to come and work in us to bring about further transformation of our lives. Lord, that where there is sexual sin in our lives, that you would bring conviction, that you would lead us to confess, that you would lead us in what it means, Jesus, to, to go to whatever lengths it takes. And Lord, that we would not lose sight of the gospel, that we would not pursue that as some means to make ourselves right with you or out of fear, but Lord, rather seeing the glory of your love and your abundant grace, that, that our, our response would be just that, a response out of love, marveling at the glory of your love and grace. Work in us, Lord Jesus, we pray.